are listening to the DJI podcast, a space to listen our online events, conversations, and seminars, hosted by the Transitional Justice Institute. Everyone, uh, my name is Rory O'Connell. Welcome. I am the research director for law at Ulster University, and I'm pleased to be chairing this seminar, which is a book launch and discussion for the law and practice of peacekeeping for grounding human rights, uh, written by Rosa Friedman, Nicholas Lemay Herbert, and Siobhan Wills. And we have with us um, Professor Nigel White as a discussant. So the seminar today is being live streamed on Facebook and we are also recording it. So we will post it later on our YouTube channel at TJI. So I'll first of all say a little bit about the book and who we'll be hearing from today and outline uh, the format. Now, we will have the authors do some short commentary on the book before we turn to Nigel White to offer his um, thoughts on reading the book. Uh, and then we'll go back to the authors before opening it up for any questions or observations. Uh, there will be a, a chat and a Q&A function that members of the audience can use if they want to ask any questions. As for the book itself, uh, this is an exploration of the highly controversial United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti. UN's legacy in Haiti is not all negative, but it does include incidents of sexual scandals, the divisive use of force to clean up difficult neighborhoods, as well as a cholera epidemic brought inadvertently by Nepalese peacekeepers that killed more than 8,000 Haitians and infected more than 600,000. The book presents a unique multidisciplinary analysis of the legacy of the mission for Haiti. It presents an innovative account of contemporary international peacekeeping law and practice, arguing for a new model of accountability going beyond the outdated immunity mechanisms to foreground human rights. The authors are Rosa Friedman, Nicholas LeMay Herbert, and Siobhan Wills. Uh, Rosa Friedman is Professor of Law, Conflict, and Global Development at the University of Reading, and she has published widely on the UN and human rights, serves on the UN Secretary General Civil Society Advisory Board for the Prevention of Sexual Exploitation and Abuse, and acts as a specialist advisor to the UK government. Nicholas Lemay Herbert, who cannot join us today, is a senior lecturer and director of research at the Department of International Relations, Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs, Australian National University. Prior to joining ANU in 2019, Nicholas worked as a professor at the University of Quebec and senior lecturer at the University of Birmingham. His current research interests include intervention issues, in particular local resistance to international interventions and the political economy of interventions. Siobhan Wills is director of our Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University, and she has led two Arts and Humanities Research Council funded projects on human rights and the excessive use of force in policing and law enforcement. She has co-directed two award-winning films, It Stays With You, Use of Force by UN Peacekeepers in Haiti, and Right Now I Want to Scream, Police and Army Killings in Rio, the Brazil-Haiti Connection. And then we are joined as discussant by Nigel White. Nigel is holder of the Chair in Public International Law at the University of Nottingham and co-director of the Nottingham International Law and Security Centre. He served on the Research 
Excellence Framework and Research Assessment Exercise Panels in 2014 and 2020. His expertise lies in the fields of United Nations law, peacekeeping law, sanctions, arms control law, the regulation of private security contracts, war powers, and military justice. He has undertaken a number of funded research projects, including on the regulation of private military and security contractors, democratic accountability and the deployment of troops, human rights and post-conflict situations, the role of national courts and international law, counterterrorism and the rule of law, and the role of private security actors in extractive industry. He has given written and oral evidence to the UK House of Commons Constitutional Affairs Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, the All-Party Parliamentary Inquiry into Terrorism, and has made a written submission to the Iraq Inquiry. Uh, so we're very pleased that Nigel can join us to act as discussant for this book today. So we're going to start with some words from the authors. Um, Rosa and Siobhan, would you like to start us, okay. kick us off? Thank you, everyone. Um, thank you all for coming. And I would like to start by thanking Nigel for being so generous with his time in reading the book and also for being here and also to thank Rory for chairing this event. And I'd also like to say what a privilege it was to work with Rosa and Nick on this book. I've heard people say co-writing is very stressful and very difficult. Co-writing with Nick and Rosa was great. They're really wonderful people to work with. And I think maybe that was because we came from a similar experience. All three of us have worked in Haiti in collaboration with civil society groups and we have all been working on addressing the impact of the UN stabilization mission in Haiti, MINUSTA, on the marginalized communities in which most of the mission security operations took place. Rosa, Nick and I were working in Haiti over roughly similar periods of time, working with different groups and we were working on different specific issues. But a common theme that emerged for all three of us was the disjunction between the UN's commitment to upholding and advancing human rights protection globally and the way in which the mission operated in Haiti, which was to act as if it had no human rights obligations towards the communities in which it operated. And this was evidenced by the fact that residential communities were subjected to excessive use of force using techniques and weapons more appropriate to a war scenario, resulting in very high ca Haitian casualties, including many children, and resulting also in destruction of homes and livelihoods. Suffering was compounded by extremely high levels of sexual abuse and by the mission's negligence in bringing about a cholera epidemic that has killed thousands. And that horror has been compounded by the UN's attempts to deny responsibility. This theme, that is the disjunction between the UN's stated human rights commitments and its failure to uphold them in its own operations is not unique to Haiti. And I think it has reverberations beyond UN peacekeeping. There is, to my mind, a conflict between states and international organizations approaches to security and their approaches to human rights. And that's a conflict that's recently come more prominently into public discourse with the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly since the killing of George Floyd, but it's not something new. It's at the heart of the UN system and many other systems of security and human rights regulation intersections. The UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has been committed to entrenching human rights across all areas of the UN for several decades, but that commitment has made very limited inroads on the areas of the UN that are de dedicated to security, at least in the context of the UN's own operations. 
our security systems, I'm not talking about the UK, but internationally and in general, were established to maintain the structures and power imbalances that were originally developed to protect the interests of the states and political elites that had benefited from European colonialism and slavery. And looking globally, to a large extent, the people whose human rights are most likely to be violated frequently and on a large scale are residents of communities that were subjected to discrimination and abuse in the slavery and colonial eras. And it's no coincidence, I think, that the Haitian communities that suffered most harm from Minister's security operations were the extremely marginalized communities. They were the ones most likely to be subjected to military operations. They were the ones most vulnerable to sexual abuse, and they were the ones most likely to die of cholera. And this is a pattern that exists all over the world. Residents of marginalized communities are more likely to be subjected directly to human rights violations. And at the same time, human rights violations are being enabled by political and security systems that choose to ignore the rights of the poor and fail to afford the poor equal rights to everybody else. Very often the poor are presented as a security threat. Their very existence is a threat to everybody who is not so poor. In my view, the UN must take active steps to address this imbalance if it is to main credit, maintain credibility as a human rights body. The commitment to entrenching human rights in all areas of UN activity must include the UN security operations, especially its peacekeeping operations, which are aimed at protection and not at waging war. And um, that's all I'm going to say for my bit of the introduction. And I'm going to pass over to Rosa. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And, and I echo my thanks to Rory and to Nigel, but also to you, Siobhan. Um, Nick and I have written together for many, many years, coming for a decade now. Um, opening up our collaboration to someone else was always going to be a bit, uh, a bit of a throw of the dice. And it was an absolute pleasure to work with you on this. Um, I mean, when, when I'm thinking, when I think back about how we got involved with writing about Haiti, um, Nick, who's not here, um, had spent many, many months um, doing research in Haiti, very much sort of a, a critical lens of research in Haiti, working at this sort of local, local level, and being very much part of the communities that resist the UN or, in fact, international interventions generally. And I came in looking at the UN in terms of accountability for the cholera claims um, and thinking very much about the UN as a top-down international organisation. But where we, where we met in terms of meeting of minds and where we meet with Siobhan is foregrounding human rights throughout all of the work that we do in Haiti. Um, you can look at the UN in Haiti or in, or in other peacekeeping and stabilization missions, and you can see that it is a hybrid sovereign power. That it comes in, I, in, in places like Kosovo or Timor-Leste, Timor it comes in and, and takes over as the full sovereign power. But in places like Haiti or in current peacekeeping operations, there'll be times when the UN takes on the role of the state. And there are times when the UN steps back and allows the state to take on the roles of the state. And if we're thinking about the UN as a hybrid sovereign power, we have to think about the UN as being bound by international human rights laws, just like any sovereign state would be bound. Um, what we saw in terms of cholera and the cholera, cholera claims, what we've seen in terms of sexual exploitation and abuse, what we've seen um, in terms of use of force is the UN not upholding international human rights law and not adhering to the human rights by which it's bound or we argue it's bound. 
um, when acting like that in Haiti. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a scholar and an expert on Haiti, but to understand the resistance to the intervention of the UN in this stabilization mission, you have to understand a little bit of the history about Haiti generally and, and the background of international interventions. Haiti is the first black sovereign state. In, it's the first state to overthrow colonialism, to get rid of the slave trade. And, and, and by doing so, it paid back billions to France in sovereign debt to pay back for those slaves, which France considered its property. So Haiti, which is so resource rich and at one point produced 50% of the world's sugarcane, is, is so underdeveloped because it had to pay back this debt. And because it was the first black sovereign state, right, if we're thinking about, about sort of the slave trade and about the way in which Haiti was created as a, 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 as a country with none of the native or indigenous populations left because they were slaughtered and slaves were brought in from Africa, it was also a threat to the colonial, empirical whites generally. And so this narrative that Haiti requires international interventions is a racist narrative. But it's a narrative that remains even today. This idea that, that Haiti is unstable, that it's not able to, that Haitians aren't able to vote for their own government, that the international arena will come and intervene if they don't like who is elected. And, um, and it's, it's only with those complexities and understanding the history of the country and also the history of states that credit Haiti with their freedom, states like Venezuela and Bolivia that look to Haiti and say, we only became free from colonialism because Haiti stood up to become the first to throw off uh, their colonial rulers. Um, it's only through understanding all of those complexities that you can start to understand the relationship between Haitians and what was then minister and is now then became just, but, but international interventions generally. Um, I think what made this book such a pleasure to write was bringing together three different perspectives, being able to learn from one another. Um, I always say I'm an international lawyer who doesn't do very much law. So actually having to engage with the kind of law around use of force that Siobhan does, which is real law. Um, and then, you know, but I bring the diplomacy side and bridging the gap with international relations and Nick brings with him a critical social science expertise and a, and a particular understanding of the context in Haiti. So. I've, I thoroughly enjoyed writing the book. I don't know how much anyone will enjoy reading it. I've seen a couple of reviews where people say, yeah, this is a great book, but, and they're my favorite reviews because you know our job is to engage with one another critically. Um, but that's a, that's a little bit of background from me as, as to why it, it, we weren't just looking at Haiti and the UN, but also the legitimacy, the, the fundamental legitimacy of should the UN have been there in the first place? And if it was, why was it committing these human rights abuses? Thank you, Rosa, Siobhan, a fascinating introduction to the book there. And we'll turn now to Nigel for his comments. Thanks, Rory. Um, it's a great book, but no, I won't start like that. Um, <laughs> I, no, I'd, I'd like to start by um, congratulating you on, the, on all three of you on the book. I think, I, I mean, I did enjoy reading it. Um, I was saying to Siobhan before we started, it, it's uh, short, but it's packed full of analysis, evidence, um, critical evaluation. And I think it does go to the heart of the problem that the UN has now. 
um, with its peacekeeping function, it's moved from um, strict impartiality, neutrality, non-intervention towards um, being an interventionist and an interventionist with an agenda that I think this book shows uh, does not have human rights at its heart when bizarrely, paradoxically, the UN claims that it does. So I think it's incredibly important a piece of work and it, it sort of made me reflect because I started when I started as a PhD student in the mid 80s, uh, part of my thesis was on peacekeeping and how it's really fundamentally changed. Um, so different now and the, and the legal problems are different and solutions are more complex than they were and perhaps than they ought to be. And I think the book really does sort of shine um, a spotlight through that complexity by showing how if you simply, if the UN simply embraced human rights and accepted it was obliged by it, not just sort of a pick and choose sort of approach to human rights, which it has, then it is bound by human rights law, but it operationalizes that then the whole thing would change and hopefully my comments will will uh, explain that a little bit but it is the book that provokes these comments it's uh, uh, i'd like to say that at the start so i think it makes a number of major contributions to the book and i'm going to highlight those in a minute but just to sort of set the context for uh, people that might not be too familiar with peacekeeping um one of my favorite authors on peacekeeping is finn Seierstead, the <clears throat> who, who was analysing the first peacekeeping operation in 1956 in Suez. And he, he likened it to um, the peacekeeping operation to being like a plate glass window, acting like a, a fragile barrier between former belligerents, but providing an opportunity for a temporary ceasefire to develop into a, into a lasting peace. The force was impartial in a very strict sense. Uh, consensual and was um, restricted to the use of force in, in, in strict self-defense. It didn't challenge sovereignty of the state or states. It didn't exercise any public powers of arrest uh, or detention, for example. And these peacekeeping principles were grounded in, uh, in international law, in, so in the ideas of sovereignty, non-intervention, non-use of force, and very much reflected the values of um, the non-aligned movement at the time. And uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the UN Secretary General at the time, really shaped peacekeeping and he crafted uh, the sort of legal framework for peacekeeping in during UNEF really, sort of made it up as he went along, but it really reflecting these basic principles of international law. So it has uh, a basis in international law. And it's the framework by which we still judge peacekeeping operations. The holy trinity of peacekeeping principles, impartiality, consent, limited use of force. You read any UN policy document on peacekeeping and, or any report from the Special Committee on Peacekeeping and those three uh, principles are still um, referred to. And it even refers to them in the context of its modern stabilization operations. And, and most of the attention 
on those stabilization operations uh, focus on Mali, Central African Republic and the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and Haiti is the one that is often missed out of that sort of analysis and I think the book obviously fills that gap but it does more than that. But in these stabilization operations as they're now called there's clear evidence that peacekeepers operate beyond the holy trinity of principles. They confront armed groups and spoilers and uh, use force uh, proactively rather than defensively. Uh, they support the government. They're often uh, fighting alongside government forces or operating alongside government forces. They're helping to extend the government's uh, effective control over the country by the use of force if necessary. They regularly use public powers of arrest, detention, and the use of lethal force. And this is where the, you know, the, the sort of smokescreen of international humanitarian law is often deployed because in Mali or the DRC, um, there, are armed, there, there is an armed conflict, or at least in parts of the country. And um, this leads to the whole of the peacekeeping operation to be framed more towards the law of war than the law of peace. Um, and and the, the sort of restrictive framework that formerly governed peacekeeping operations seems to have given way to a permissive framework governed by the laws of war. Um, this was supposed to be exceptional, that peacekeepers normally were protected, they were not combatants, um, but exceptionally they could become involved in an armed conflict. And that was recognised finally by the Secretary General in 1999 in the bulletin on IHL. And the book very strongly argues that that bulletin needs to be matched by a bulletin in human rights law, and I totally agree with that. Because, as, as I'll hope to show and the book shows, Human rights law is the uh, is the norm. It should be the uh, applicable law to everyday peacekeeping activities, and uh, IHL should be the exception. So it's bizarre that we have a bulletin on IHL, the exception, and not a bulletin on human rights law, the norm. <clears throat> okay, so I think. Having set the scene, just the, the three major contributions of the book, as I see it, is, first of all, I'll, leading from what I've said on the applicable law, in analysing in depth the operation in Haiti, and it really is a, um, a really good example of a case study uh, serving uh, an excellent broader purpose, you're sort of removing the smokescreen of IHL, of laws of war, because there was no armed conflict in Haiti and the book makes that absolutely clear. So this is an operation that can't sort of um, use the excuse that there may have been an armed conflict in part of the country and that required peacekeepers to act accordingly. The smokescreen of IHL cannot be thrown up to disguise the fact that um, Modern peacekeeping operations, including Haiti, operate beyond the normal constraints of uh, human rights law, the law enforcement paradigm that should govern those operations. <clears throat> they seem to operate more in a 
sort of no man's land between peace and war, a grey area that's sort of suggested um, or, or created by the use of uh, the Security Council using Chapter 7 to mandate force. It sort of creates this idea that somehow we're in this state of exception between peace and war and somehow uh, peacekeepers can sort of borrow some principles from IHL for their normal uh, operations. Clearly that is legally wrong and also um, militarily and practically uh, very problematic. The book makes it clear that uh, Security Council resolutions um, which authorise a force, this is at page 117, they only deal with the Yusab Bellum. They're only a reason for the use of force. They're not the applicable legal framework to the actual use of force. That is still governed by, exceptionally by uh, IHL, International Humanitarian Law, if there is a armed conflict and, and if peacekeepers engage in that conflict. IHL is applicable, but normally the, the applicable law is human rights law. It's the only universal standards governing, for example, the use of force or uh, the detention of, uh, of individuals. Um, and so obviously uh, of relevance to the practice of peacekeeping. So basically, if peacekeepers are not engaged as combatants, which is exceptional, they are bound by basic human rights law. Uh, and that is uh, the law governing law enforcement as codified in 1990 by the General Assembly. And the book points this out clearly. Peacekeepers are really no different in this way to police officers. They are, they are soldiers, but they are acting in uh, a law enforcement capacity and are restricted to using force in self-defense and in defense of others. <clears throat> the problem here, I think that, uh, I'm not saying the book should have addressed this, but it made me think about this problem. Uh, you're applying a law enforcement paradigm to soldiers and yet soldiers are not trained or equipped to act as police officers. And, you know, we've had experiences like this in the UK where the soldiers in Northern Ireland were governed by the normal standards of criminal law, but they were equipped with uh, heavier weaponry than a police officer resulting in uh, excessive use of force. This is the problem. You're using soldiers is it to uh, perform essentially a police function, then uh, I think that is a practical problem that the UN needs to tackle. But the fact that the peacekeeping force is, 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 is perhaps more heavily armed, is operating a dangerous, often violent environment, doesn't change the rules. Um, they're still governed by the basic standards of human rights law. And it doesn't mean that, that uh, peacekeepers can't use force if they are threatened or if uh, civilians under their uh, in their areas of deployment are threatened. It doesn't mean that lethal force can't be used to uh, protect the peacekeepers and, and uh, individuals, but that force should be defensive and reactive and shouldn't be used as a, some sort of solution to uh, the instability caused by violence in the host country. And this is 
where the book I think is very um, precise and, 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 and reveals the problems the UN has. And uh, I think it was page 122, it, it shows that the, the UN doesn't apply human rights law, at least clearly to peacekeepers, to the military component. But it has made it clear that human rights law applies to the police component of a peace operation. So this is the pick and choose approach I mentioned before. Yeah, human rights law applies to the police, but now not to the military component. It, show, it shows the UN realizes it should be in accepting human rights law, but it's, the interesting question is why it doesn't uh, accept that it's uh, clearly applicable to the military component. And the, here the book again gets under the surface and it reveals in its interviews with UN people involved in Haiti, some, some in the UN think that human rights law is the applicable framework, even military officers interviewed suggested that while others uh, suggest that it's the security council mandate under chapter seven which gen somehow generates a wider and uncertain legal framework and the evidence in the book is that the latter view seems to have prevailed at least in practice um, and also in the standards being applied by the UN on, in its policies on the use of force. For example, on, in defining proportionality, when force is proportionate, um, the UN standards seem to prefer uh, an IHL proportionality standard, which is much more um, broad and expansive uh, than the human rights equivalent. So, the, it's whether it's confusion caused by the use of chapter seven mandate, whether it's deliberate um, misinterpretation of the law, or whether it, it just simply reflects a genuine lack of agreement in the UN um, with the result that um, that uncertainty is exploited. It's, it, I don't think the book can answer that question. It can highlight the problem. But it, then the book shows how this permissive uh, rather than a restrictive approach to the use of force led to uh, offensive action in Haiti against criminal gangs by the peacekeepers in densely populated areas of City Soleil, for example, 2005 to 2007, including continuous fire from helicopters with uh, numerous instances of collateral civilian losses. And the fact that the UN uses these terms like collateral damage and civilian uh, in this context, as the book clearly shows, it reveals that the UN views the situation as somehow closer or akin to an armed conflict, even though it was not. The invocation of chapter seven in the authorizing resolution seems to trigger an approach to peacekeeping which borrows from IHL, even in situations short of armed con conflict, when the applicable law is human rights law. And the book clearly gets to the heart of that issue. And uh, the, the argument that the UN seems to prefer is that a human right, well, seems to sort of infer is that a human rights standard would not be adequate for a peacekeeping force to do its job. 
Um, but as I've said, it doesn't restrict peacekeepers from defending themselves or defending civilians, the two most important tasks. Besides which, it's just unrealistic to think that a force of 10 or 20,000 peacekeepers uh, within a country uh, can actually forcefully bring peace. It is just militarily uh, impossible for a peacekeeping operation to do that. So to push peacekeepers towards this uh, law of war paradigm is, uh, is actually just going to lead to a greater loss of life. The book also, in addition to highlighting the problem with the use of force, the unconstrained use of lethal force, um, the book is also, the second contribution is on uh, sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers, which has become an endemic problem in peacekeeping operations. And it made me think whether the, actually, what I've just been saying, there's a link between the increasing coercive combatant nature of peacekeeping and the and the sort of almost increase in SEA that is occurring, um, um, whether that behavior encouraging peacekeepers to be combatants encourages uh, other forms of misbehavior. Uh, I don't know, but it, it just struck me that the two things are, are increasing problematically and, and might be linked. failure to eradicate SEA um, by, by the UN uh, shows really the structural weaknesses of peacekeeping operations where peacekeepers, I'm talking about the military component here, uh, who are uh, committing acts of sexual abuse and exploitation, effectively have immunity from the host state, cannot be, be prosecuted by the UN because the UN doesn't have the competence to do so. And so remain dependent upon the troop contributing nations to exercise their jurisdiction in an effective way, which as the book shows in the case of Haiti, and this is the same with all military operations, uh, the TCNs do not effectively prosecute uh, abusive peacekeepers. And it, it, the book makes some very telling points here. Um, page 54, it says, it looks at the issue of why the host state doesn't really have a role in the punishment of peacekeepers when actually it is, you know, the citizens of the host state that are the victims. And the book points out that the removal of the host state jurisdiction results in a lack of access to justice for victims. That highlights the problem with the legal framework centering on perpetrators and state sovereignty rather than um, on victims and human rights. And that is the sort of book in a nutshell. You know, the victims and their rights and their access to justice are secondary or, or not even an issue for the UN. It's about how we accommodate the TCNs. We've got to get them to contribute troops. We don't want to offend them too much. We'll, we'll impose some measures, but we can't go too far because we won't have any troops to, to deploy. It's all about uh, power, secure, you know, and perceptions of um, security rather than about rights. 
So <clears throat> the prosecutions for, for sexual abuse in Haiti appear almost non-existent, which is remarkable, even though the uh, clearly example, uh, documented examples in the book and earthed in the book. So the, the UN is, and TCNs, two contributing nations, are, are completely failing here. Uh, the lack of clarity in the UN's approach to uh, sexual exploitation in its understandings of transactional and survival sex, for example, is fully exposed in the book. Uh, this is compounded by the hierarchical structures of Haitian society, has led to very few instances of sexual exploitation being reported to the UN, even though it clearly is present, except where paternity claims have been pursued and they've been pursued without success. The UN and TCNs are simply failing to provide victims with access to justice, um, something for which there is no excuse. And then, so really interesting discussion on SEA and analysis of it um, and sort of um, advocating a human rights approach, which uh, should be adopted across the UN operations generally. And then it, that leads me to the third contribution on, on the on the way the UN has responded to the cholera outbreak. The UN is primarily responsible for that. Whereas you can say with SEA, that is a responsibility that should be borne by the perpetrators, the TCNs and the UN. The UN for failing to stop it, the TCNs for not disciplining their troops properly, and the perpetrators obviously because they did it. With the case of the cholera, it clearly is you know, the UN doesn't have anywhere to hide. It is responsible for, uh, for the negligent introduction of the disease into the country, the poor construction of the faulty sanitary system in, in, in the peacekeeper's base. And it's not accepted its legal liability, only moral responsibility. And as the book shows, a sort of voluntary approach to remediation. And the discussion in the book about the UN's use of immunity to, to successfully um, prevent suits being brought in private law, its failure to set up alternative means of dispute settlement uh, for those affected is really damning. It effectively shows that the UN is able to determine both the extent of its immunity, choose whether to compensate the victims of its negligence, and decide when and where human rights obligations attach to it. Through its case study of Haiti, its careful exposition and analysis of uh, excessive lethal force, uh, sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers and the cholera outbreak, uh, the book really shows the inadequacies of the UN's policies and practices and its failure to create a clear, effective and uh, enforceable legal framework within which peacekeepers should operate. To finish, the conclusion of the book offers a way forward for the UN to restore both the legitimacy and legality of peacekeeping. And I'll quote, it says we need to bring peacekeeping practice in line with international law and formally recognize the applicability of international human rights law to all UN operations and recognize that outside the conduct of hostilities, all decisions and actions that affect the rights and well-being of human beings 
should be governed by international human rights law, not international humanitarian law. It requires that missions be accountable to the people directly affected by their operations, such as the people living in the missions areas of operations, and not just host and troop contributing states and their political elites. I think that is precisely uh, the prescription needed. Both of these elements together are essential. First, you need a clear human rights compliant legal framework for peacekeeping operations. And secondly, an alignment of that framework with human rights based approaches to accountability. It's essential that the UN recognizes finally human rights law as the governing framework and puts humanitarian law in the exceptional box. And it needs to clearly articulate this to peacekeepers and not keep borrowing concepts from humanitarian law and proportionality, protection of property, and many other instances where the language of the law of war has crept into peacekeepers' rules of engagement somehow. <clears throat> and in order to ensure that misbehavior is addressed and punished, those individuals whose rights have been violated have to have access to justice against the perpetrators, against the troop contributing nation and also the United Nations. A human rights approach should ensure that those who hold the rights have the means to enforce them. At the moment, this doesn't happen. The decision to punish uh, and or remediate is solely in the hands of the UN and or the troop contributing nations. The, vi the victims are simply objects, not subjects of the law. And in the end, this is what the UN seems to be afraid of. Um, it's afraid that if it goes beyond its rhetoric of pr promoting human rights and actually recognizes that the UN has duties to individuals and that the victims of abuse at the hands of peacekeepers have enforceable human rights, the true extent of the problem will be unveiled and um, will expose the UN to the floodgates of claims and litigations. That's what it's really afraid of. But you can turn that on its head um, because to expose the UN finally to such claims should force the organization to significantly improve the behavior of its peacekeepers. And only proper accountability will ensure that uh, that behavior is improved. So I think the book, by focusing on these three areas, use of force, sexual abuse and exploitation, and the sort of negligence of the peacekeeper, the carelessness and, and the unwillingness of the UN to, to recognize its liability, it really reveals the UN has lost its way in peacekeeping. Um, and it's, it's ended up by blurring standards from um, different areas of law um, when really it should be recognizing the, 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 the applicable law is human rights law. And if you start to accept that in your operations and practices, then it should become uh, a lot clearer. And it will enable the UN to get back to its peacekeeping roots, I would argue, uh, which it seems to have lost. I'll stop there, but uh, thank you. Thank you, Nigel, um, for acting in so exemplary a manner as our discussant today. Um, so we're going to hand back 
to Rosa and Siobhan first, if there's anything they want to respond to in relation to Nigel's commentary there. And meanwhile, if anyone in the audience has any questions, please use the chat function or the Q&A function to ask them for our authors are indeed discussant. Rosa, Siobhan. Thank you so much for reading it so carefully. I don't think anyone's read it that carefully. Um, um, I, no, I really appreciate the sort of way that you engaged with it and the level that you engaged on. Um, I think it something you said made me made me think about um, Alex Gilder has written a, a review of it. Alex is now a colleague of mine at Reading, but had written this this review of our book where he said we sort of missed this opportunity to really think about Haiti within the context of stabilization operations. Um, because I do, I, I in many ways lump in stabilization missions with peacekeeping. Um, and in many ways, I'm looking at peacekeeping over the last few decades, not peacekeeping, going back to its actual roots, as, as you were talking about. Um, and it, it does make me wonder what is the future of, what's gonna be the next cycle of peace operations and peacekeeping? Because you're absolutely right, we can't keep borrowing from humanitarian law and, and warfare, essentially, to deal with peacekeeping. Peacekeeping operations are now about state building and development and, um, and, and delivery of aid, but also supporting governments, um, building justice systems and schools and everything else. And it's no longer about boots on the ground and, and guns in the hand. Or if it is, that's only one component. Um, I don't have an answer to it, but I think listening to you really made me think again about what is going to come next. And, and we don't know, sitting here, whether the UN will exist in a week's time. You know, I think... At three o'clock, I'm sure other people have set their clocks for it, but we're going to listen to this Security Council discussion on Russia and Ukraine and the shifting of the blame to everyone but the perpetrators. Um, it could well be the beginning of the end for the UN and the beginning of, of some form of new multilateral organisations. And if so, what's what's going to be with peacekeeping? You know, NATO aren't brilliant at peacekeeping. And certainly, they're not brilliant on the human rights issues. They've only just drafted a, a, a preventing sexual exploitation and abuse policy in the last couple of years. So I'm not necessarily looking to them. And the African Union doesn't have a lot of policies on a lot of human rights issues in terms of their peacekeepers. And same with ECOWAS. But um, we're kind of moving into the dawn of a new era. And it might be a, about time that when they when people like you and Siobhan, definitely not me, draw up sort of rules of engagement for how peacekeeping operations look, that they start to foreground and center human rights concerns. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nigel, for such a, such a detailed, rich reading of our book. I've forgotten some of the things that, that we wrote. <laughs> um, so thank you. And thank you also, Rosa, for uh, your insightful comments on, on where we are now and what, where we might go or, or what the crisis we are facing now. Um, in listening to, to you both, um, one of the things uh, Nigel reminded me of with us uh, that um, when his reference to um, that the, the, the UN accepted that the, its police forces are subject to human rights is that this um, argument about the extraterritoriality of human rights that has been going on for, oh, I don't know, ever since I, I started doing my um, law degree. Um, clearly the UN has accepted 
if police um, have to comply with uh, human rights standards when they're in Haiti, then there is at least uh, a frame in which extraterritorial territoriality applies so that you, they can't just say, oh, it doesn't apply to, to our peacekeeping troops because they were operating extraterritorially. And I think um, that step that they have recognized that, that we can't just ignore uh, the applicability of human rights when we're abroad, um, partly because uh, we are supposed to be protecting human rights and to ignore it just makes no logical sense and is undermines the legitimacy of the UN. But clearly they've accepted it with their police forces abroad, their peace, peacekeeping police forces. So why not with the troops? Um, and I think there's something, this issue about the, I, the tension between security, military operations, and uh, the human rights wing of uh, the UN and, and all the arms and, and, and permutations of the UN human rights system, which is very broad, um, that there is a, a conflict there and that, um, that there seems to be a reluctance and a hesitancy from the human rights sector to impinge on the security military sector. And uh, the security military sector just, uh, well, they're not going to be impinged on, thank you very much. Um, and it, it's, it struck me, I, I'm now working, what is, I suppose I'm coming up to, I'm now working, I have been for the last few years, looking at um, police violence in Brazil. And it is connected with the operations in Haiti because the police violence in Brazil, um, the mission in Haiti, and this is not to say that the problems in Haiti were linked to the fact that they were Brazilian, but um, that there is a link in what is happening in Brazil because the because of the link between the experience of a Brazilian-led mission in Haiti now operating in Brazil um, and doing policing functions. And one of the things that I found uh, in the campaign for um, General Bolsonaro's presidency, um, General Heleno, who was the first uh, mission commander of MINUSTA, and he was in charge of some very uh, disturbing operations in 2005, in one of which um, 22,700 22, bullets, 78 grenades, five mortars were deployed in, in a, an overnight operation in a, in a residential area, very poor area where people living mostly in salvaged um, corrugated metal uh, shacks basically and leading to, well, since there was no investigation by the UN, between at least 30 and more than 60 deaths, but no figures because the UN never investigated. But anyway, General Heleno was on um, Brazilian television um, campaigning in favor of uh, the election of Bolsonaro. They have a very close relationship. Um, Helena was described as a father figure to Bolsonaro, and he just talked about the mission in Haiti, and he talked about having very flexible, um, uh, flexible rules of um, engagement in Haiti, and how he wanted to apply those same flexible rules of engagement in, in the favelas in Brazil. I mean, the, the policing in, in the favelas in Brazil is already very violent, but they wanted to increase that. And uh, he actually said that the rules of engagement in Haiti permitted the, um, the commander on the ground, not the, 
and he specified and reiterated the commander on the ground, not the commander overall, to authorize lethal force to anyone that they suspected of having a hostile intention. And that hostile intention, he, he said, included anyone that was armed that was stealing goods. And that, to my mind, uh, is a shoot to kill policy. If somebody is armed and they're not threatening anybody's life, they're stealing. Um, in a context outside, even in a con armed conflict, I'm questionable that someone who is not a combatant, who is stealing goods, should be permitted to be shot. And that's another thing that came into my mind as uh, Nigel was talking about the spoilers. What legal frame does spoilers come into? Who, uh, you know, shooting at spoilers, are, are they're not combatants? But at any rate, that he was arguing that uh, it, uh, the, the UN had, under its rules of engagement, the authority in his mind, whether it did or not, to shoot anybody armed that was stealing goods. And he wanted to apply the same thing in, in, in Brazil. Um, and, and Bolsonaro got elected. He's still being criticized, but General Helena was still there. They are shooting people in the favelas for, for they're firing from helicopters. So um, people are being shot without doing anything, not even stealing goods. Um, but, but because of their op operating a, a war policy um, to control gang crime, to control the war on drugs in the favelas. And this has become a global militarized problem where you're drawing on law of war to deal with uh, domestic, uh, domestic violence, domestic, uh, well, uh, drug crime, basically. And I found that very disturbing that this could be on television and that there was no comeback for General Helena for actually describing this. But I was looking back when I, when I heard this at 2000, when he was actually a mission commander in, in Haiti at the time, he said publicly on uh, uh, Haitian radio, Radio Metropole, that we must kill the bandits. And then he said, but it must be the bandits only. But there was no war. Who are the bandits? That if, uh, you know, the British Armed Forces said that in Northern Ireland, I think there would be, you know, outroar. This is a shoot to kill policy. You can't kill uh, people simply because they're armed or causing. But it, apparently, according to the UN, nothing happened. There was no comeback. Um, and then I pushed a bit. Was there any comeback? And he did resign. And according to some Brazilian newspaper, he was pushed to resign. But it was all kept quiet. So we don't know. Uh, whether he, he came to an end of term and voluntarily resigned, or the UN said, look, you're being too, this was unacceptable, you've got to go, but it's pushed under. And that, I think, is problematic in itself if the UN is not transparent in its standards. If you're applying, if you are advocating or you're promoting human rights, um, that you're, you want to uphold and maintain human rights, and the UN is advocating that this is a core theme for it and a core role, then not only must you apply human rights and you must set it out and have a framework so that all your, the people who are working uh, in whatever field under your authority apply human rights and know, know what the frames are and what the rules are, but you must almost also communicate your obligation to apply human rights, have systems whereby the people in the countries where you're operating know what rules apply to you, um, what circumstances they can be fired at, who they can go to if there's a violation, and know that they they that there is a route to get 
some access to justice, some route to be able to claim that their rights have been violated. And when I was in Haiti, there were people who said that they went to the UN again and again, they would turn up at the UN doors and say, um, my husband's been killed, my child's been killed. And the Minusta mission would say, it's all right, we'll call you, we'll get back to you. And they didn't. And, you know, after month after month of dragging yourself when you don't have very much money up to the UN gates to say, look, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and nothing happens. Um, thank you, that's my rant. <laughs> Thank you, um, Rose and Javon, for those very eloquent uh, responses to Nigel's comments. Um, we are actually at time and we don't have any questions as it happens. Uh, and so I imagine we do have other commitments, so we will wrap up uh, if that's agreeable. Um, but I would just really like to thank all of you. That's really been um, an enlightening, um, an inspiring hours discussion on the current state of peacekeeping. It's particularly re resonant for me because I happen to be reading some of the debates in the British newspapers at the moment about the history of colonialism and uh, a government minister proposing uh, teaching the pros and cons of colonialism, uh, which seems a rather problematic approach. And I was struck by many things, but particularly struck uh, by um, the description of, of this as a story of colonialism and its aftermath and how our modern world is still shaped in many ways by um, the history of European imperialism. Uh, so I am very grateful for that and for really the masterclass level discussion of peacekeeping and stabilization missions. Um, so thank you. Uh, Rose and Siobhan for joining us uh, to talk about your book and thank you Nigel uh, for what was really um, an exemplary uh, discussant role uh, today so uh, we'll make this all available as well on our YouTube channel uh, but thank you and I wish you all a good afternoon or morning or evening or wherever you happen to be in the globe okay thank you thanks so much Rory Thank you. Thank you.